Now let's by God's enabling seek to explore something of this area of uh, scripture today. We're basically going to be looking at not everything in the passage, we can't do that, but we're going to be looking at four areas of testing that come up in this passage of scripture. Philip himself, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, was tested in the verses that we've just read, and we read there that Jesus said this to test him. For Jesus himself knew what he would do. Then there's a testing in verse 9. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many people? The boy was tested. Because presumably he had options. He could have held on to his loaves and fishes, but he didn't. And then there's another testing in verse 10. Because we read there, Jesus said, make the crowd Make the people sit down. They can choose to do what Jesus wants them to do or not. They too were tested. And the final testing that we're going to be looking at is what uh, is uh, there in verse 15. It's a testing of Jesus himself. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there's a great deal of testing going on in this passage of scripture. The first we want to look at is the testing of his own disciple, Philip. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? At the age of 30, Jesus begins to perform his public miracles. This isn't the first miracle that Jesus performs. The very first miracle was the changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And here is one of the disciples of Jesus. And there are many people who have gathered to listen to Jesus. Now, there would be many different reasons amongst many different people for them wanting uh, to be there. Some were just taken with the miracles themselves. How was he able to do such astonishing things? But let's remember, the miracles in the mind of Jesus were never ever meant to stand alone. In fact, nothing in the life of Jesus was meant to stand alone. What I mean by that is this. He always gave words of explanation. Even the sacraments that we perform in this uh, church, the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, these things can never ever stand alone. Otherwise, they mean nothing at all. We must listen to what the meaning of baptism is, the washing that is available in Jesus. We must listen to Jesus as he explains what the bread is, his broken body, and what the, what the, the wine is, his shed blood. So the, so the actions of Jesus, they never stand alone. He's always giving us his word. He is mighty in word and in deed. The things he does, they do not a stand alone. And so there were people who were there wanting to just see the miracles. But there were others who were hanging on the words of Jesus. 
as he explained to them a solution for the predicament of the human race that did not involve merit on their part. And that's the glory of this book. It is so unique in the history of the world because it is a book about a religion, but it is an absolutely unique religion. It so stands out from every other religion in the world because it meets the human race at the point of its need. Now that isn't to say that there's no challenge in being a Christian. There's an enormous challenge in being a Christian. The challenge is this, to obey the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ as a thank you to Jesus for saving us the way we are. And you know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you are that because you haven't listened to what Jesus is saying. Because if you captured the simplicity and if you captured the enormity of what he's saying, you would believe, but you're not listening. Because he saves us in our sins. He saves us as we are. Here he is and he's performing his miracles and his teaching. And on this given occasion, there are at least 5,000 people, some would argue that there, are, that there were more. And that all hinges on the interpretation of the word men. Is it generic or is it specifically for the male of the species? But let's not get into that right now. There are at least 5,000 people here. They've been listening to him for a long time and their physical need is that they're hungry and they need to be fed. Why doesn't Jesus just say it and there's an enormous amount of whatever food he decides to make? Because presumably he can do that. The man who can say to the wind and the waves on a stormy sea of Galilee, peace be still, can do whatever he wants. But he doesn't. So what does he do? Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now let's remember, we're not living in the days of Tesco's and Asda's. And we're not living in the days where where you can fill fill trolleys with any amount of food that that you're after. In fact, we're, we're, we're in an area where there are no shops round about. And and I suppose onlookers might well say, well, it's obvious. There's nothing around here that we can utilize for feeding so many people. So why then is Jesus asking this question? Isn't it a bit superfluous? Well, no, it's not. It all depends what angle you're coming at. To it from. It all depends what level you're operating on. Now let's remember this. This isn't someone, this Philip, who doesn't know much about Jesus. This isn't somebody who's come into the crowd to hear his teachings for the very first time. This isn't someone who's about to see his very first miracle. It's not like that. And what is it that Philip does? Well, Philip is saying, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
on earth are we going to get an enormous amount of food to feed so many people? But listen to what we read of Jesus. He said this to test him. But he himself knew what he would do. Why on earth, when this need is presented to people, to, to, to Philip rather, why on earth did Philip not remember who this Jesus really is and what he's capable of? At one level it is astonishing that this believer, that this disciple, that this one of the twelve followers of Jesus doesn't switch on to who Jesus is and doesn't take his need and match it with the ability of Jesus to meet every need. He just doesn't do it. But there's not a living soul here today is going to be critical of her. Why not? Because you and I are forever doing this. Doing what? Meeting needs on life's journey. And what do these needs do to us? Call them needs, call them burdens, call them problems, call them issues, call them whatever we want. What do they do to us? Well, a lot of the time we live as nervous wrecks, full of anxiety, full of fears, Way down, miserable people, with a world looking on thinking, well, whatever that person's got, I don't want. Because I have enough problems of my own. Why is it that we do that? Why is it that sometimes Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal God, become a human being? For a very particular reason. What reason? To meet us at our point of need. If we think that it was only to bear the punishment of our sins that Jesus came into this world. We have limited him. Because he's there to meet us at every twist and every turn of the road. But you know what the problem is. You don't believe that. And half the time I don't either. And there's no excuse for it whatsoever. None whatsoever. And of course we pay the price of that lack of faith. We pay the price of dealing with our needs in that a kind of a way. But Jesus did it to test him. And someone might well say... Well, wasn't that a bit hard? Why didn't he just produce the food and not have this issue at all? For a very good reason. A very good reason. Because this man would reflect on how he dealt with the issue. And this man hopefully would be rebuking himself. And this man would be getting an insight into who he really is. And you know how painful that is. But that's what goes on in the lives of believers. You know, the great doctrine of justification is this, that we believe in Jesus and on the basis of belief in Jesus, all our sins are washed away and we are made just and holy in the sight of God. 
that these are astonishing truths. But that's the truth that we come across in this revelation that God gives us, that God gives the fallen human race. It's the only revelation in the world that will give us hope because we are all sinners, we are all great sinners and we will be left to perish in our sins apart from this glorious hope. God has done something about it. So we're gloriously saved on the basis of believing in who Jesus is. But that's the day when we're justified. That something else begins in our lives. And that something else that begins in our lives is called sanctification. That's a living unto righteousness and a dying unto sin. And you know how miserable your reflection on your own personal sanctification will make you. Why? Because you know your failures and your falterings. And I know mine. But in the whole process, and this isn't to justify rebellion and sin in any way whatsoever, but in the whole process, you get to know yourself in a way that you didn't before. It is very painful to get an insight into who you really are. And if you're here today, and that's been happening in your life, and you're so despondent and depressed about it, I want to say to you, now hold on a minute. That's an option you can have. But there are other options. And here's another option. Another option is to say that if I was in the world and off the world, I wouldn't have this problem at all. It's a problem that has been generated in my life because the Spirit of God has come into my experience and this is part of my lot in this great process of sanctification. But it's not just an insight into who you are that sanctification is about. It is also an insight into what Jesus is really about. Because here is Philip, he's already saved, he's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's secure for time and for eternity, but here's a simple test and he fails it miserably. And Jesus doesn't say to him, right Philip, I don't need disciples that fail me again and again like that. You're out. I'll get somebody else to take your place. He doesn't do that. But astonishingly, he goes on to perform a marvelous miracle. And Philip is, 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 is part of observing it. And I dare say he's also got a full stomach at the end of the day as well. Why? Why does a rebel like that, why does somebody who fails like that, why does he get the blessing? You see, that's what grace is about. That is what grace is about. And you can take all your falterings and all your failures, you can take all the tests that you failed that Jesus gave to you, and they can make you utterly and absolutely miserable. Or you can listen to what he says. And listen to his teachings from this very area of scripture itself. And cause it to have a surge of, of, of worship in your soul. For this astonishing God who meets us at our point of need. And who in patience and endurance nurtures us and molds us and fashions us. Painful though it may be for us into what he wants us to be. So if we ask the question, why is Jesus testing? Why does he just not do it? 
without asking him any questions, without putting him to any kind of test, the answer is this. This man needs to get to know who he really is, and this man needs to get to know who Jesus really is as well. That's the same for every single one of us. He tests us. And he'll be testing you today in some way or other. And maybe your testings, the nature of them is such that you wish they would go away. Or maybe you approach it from a different angle. Maybe today when you opened your eyes and raised your head from the pillow, the first thing that crossed your mind was this, I just want to run and hide. I want away from it all. Well, that's one way of approaching it. But the trouble is this. Where do you run to? Because there is nowhere to run to. Some people even get themselves so low about these things that their running includes taking away their own lives. But where do you run to when you do that? There is no running place. But that's not the only option. That's not the only option. There is someone that we can go to. There is someone who can meet us at our point of need. And here he is. So here's a disciple of Jesus. He's failed the test miserably. But the end of the equation is this. Not only is he a full stomach, he's a deeper insight into who he really is, but he's got a deeper insight into who Jesus really is as well. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, five loaves, in our minds, that's a lot, but I think the reality is they were about the size of rolls, small, and uh, these fish. I I guess they were his packed lunch. Maybe his mother made made the packed lunch for him and, and, and gave it to him. But this is one way he can think. This is my lunch. And maybe he will go further and think, if my mother thinks that I've just given away this food that she's given to me, I might be in trouble. This is mine, and it's nobody else's. But he was in the crowd, and by and by, Jesus wants what this boy has. Here's a question. Is he going to give it or is he not? Well, we know what the answer is. His test was willy or wanty. And the answer is this. He gives. And what does he get back? Well, the astonishing thing is, every belly was full. And there were twelve baskets filled with what was left over. But it does hinge on this. He gave it. That was his test. And in many respects, this is the Jesus who comes to every single one of us. And he tests us. In a similar manner. You know, I don't know whether that boy got what he got from his mother or not. 
But what I do know is this. What he had that day, these five loaves and these two fishes, he got them from God. That's the way it is with us all. Anything at all you have, you got it from God. The food in your cupboards, the the cupboard itself, the home itself, your job, your bank account, your mother, your father, your children, your your, your flesh and blood, your everything. You got it from God. And God asks for something back. What is it that God asks for from us? It's ourselves. He wants us to believe in him. And he wants us to be committed to him. Now I know we can go on and break it down further than that. Someone might well say, well, what do I give concerning my income to God? How do I work that out? Well, you know, in the Old Testament times, Abraham gave a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek, the priest of God. When it comes to New Testament times, we read that God loves a cheerful giver. But that we should be giving at least a tenth of what we have to God. Now I want us to be very careful about this. I am not saying that you give at least a tenth of what you have to this church. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we should be giving at least a tenth. And maybe in some cases a lot more. To this God. And to this Jesus. Why? Because he deserves it. But how will we work out? How will we work out who or what we will give it to? That's the challenge we all face. That is the challenge we all face. It's something you work out between yourself and your God. And you decide where your tithes, where your offerings are going to go. But whatever you do, whatever you do, don't omit it. Don't omit it. There isn't a bank in all the world that will repay you the interest that this God pays. I mean, how do you work out what the interest was in this given case? Five small loaves and two fish, 5,000 people fed and 12 baskets full of leftovers. What kind of interest is that? That's enormous interest. It is important. And I've just touched on the one area. It covers our whole lives. As to how we live and what we do with them. You see God is testing us. Every single one of us. Will you hold on to everything yourself? Will the whole drive and verve of your life be about me, 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 me? Or will it be about the one we owe everything to? God. God, God. Or to put it another way, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because he is God come in the flesh. But there's that other testing that we read there in verse 10. Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. They had options as well. 
There were many people who saw what Jesus did in terms of miracle and who heard his words, who basically said, what you're saying is a lot of nonsense. In fact, they went a lot further than that. They went on to say that the power behind his miracles was a power given by Beelzebub, was given by the devil himself. He was an out-and-out liar. He told terrible untruth. And that was the clash that went on. And I think we can see this. Jesus' ministry lasted for just three years. Why? Simply because there were those around in positions of authority who absolutely abused their authority and said, get rid of him. Just get rid of him. And so in his day and age, there was this great division. Some believed in him. Some hung on his every word. And some were committed to him, despite all their flaws and all their failures. That's their response to Jesus. But there were others who blocked their ears and who were seething about him. And it's exactly the same today. Exactly the same today. You tell a lot of people that they are enormous sinners and their sin will cause them to end up in hell if they die in their sins. They will be furious with you. Absolutely furious. And they ask you where you get that kind of nonsense and you say, it's the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and they will be furious with Jesus of Nazareth. How dare he tell me I'm a sinner because I'm not. I'm a good person. But it all depends what the definition of a good person is. If you measure this building with a yardstick, you'll get a very different measurement to the one I would get if I used a meter stick. It all depends what you're measuring with. And you know, it's very easy to go through a street and find people who have done this, that and the next thing. And you feel, well, I didn't do that and I didn't do that and I didn't do the next thing. And you end up feeling pretty good with yourself. But you use the yardstick that is the yardstick of Jesus of Nazareth. And he will floor you. Absolutely and utterly floor you. That's why the psalmist says, if the Lord should mark iniquity, who could stand? Nobody in all the wide world could stand. And if you are here today and you are saying... Yeah, I don't have a leg to stand on before a holy God and before a holy Jesus. Then good. Good. Because when you realize that, hopefully, you will take the next step and flee to him for what you need. And what is it you need? You need your sins washed away. You need a righteousness that is not your own, but a righteousness that is given to you, that belonged uh, to Jesus of Nazareth. And so these people in the crowd on that given day, they could have said, we don't believe anything you've got to say, and we're certainly not going to be obedient to you. But that's not the way it was. Because they got themselves organized in some way or another. Because you need some kind of organization when there are at least 5,000 people around. It's the number of people you would get in the stadium over there, uh, the Cali Thistle or, or, or um, the one in Dingwall, 
thereabouts. That's a lot of people to organize if you're going to feed them all. But they did. They did. And by and by they were fed. But I must come on to the fourth area of testing. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's not only the people who are being tested here. It's not only Philip and the boy and the crowd. It's Jesus himself. Because undoubtedly there were some people in the crowd. And all they could think of was the here and the now. I'm back to my children's address. We can get so bogged down in the issues of this world that we forget eternal matters. And all they could think of was, let's make him a great political leader of Israel and let's send Rome back to where it should be and we'll get on and we'll prosper. We'll have better jobs, we'll have more money in our pockets, we'll get better houses and so on and so forth. And Jesus is having none of it. Absolutely none of it. But that's not to say it wasn't a test for him. Because it was a test. You remember that when Jesus was baptised, hard on the heels of his baptism, he went out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights, and was tempted by the devil. And one of the things the devil wanted to give him to him was all the nations of the world. But Jesus has all the nations of the world today. So why would he want to do it in the devil's way when he's going to get it anyway? That's the crucial bit. As far as I can see, the devil was luring him into a shortcut. He would get it via a shortcut, a shortcut that would include giving obedience to the devil and a shortcut that involved not going down the road that from all eternity he would have to go down in order to save his people. Do you see the subtlety of the enemy? But the temptation is there for Jesus. Let's just take a shortcut. Even if it means obeying the devil and disobeying my heavenly father, shortcut. But he's having none of it. On all these occasions he answers the devil by going back to the book of Deuteronomy. Do you know the temptation dealing with the Deuteronomy? And many other Old Testament, old stuff, long ago, forget about that. New Testament times, don't bother with that. That's not the way it was with Jesus. And he obviously knew his Bible to the extent that he can go there and say things like, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But he has the choice. I render obedience to the devil, or I render obedience to God. Shortcut the devil, saying, short-circuit the lot. When you consider what the lot of Jesus was, it involved enormous suffering. Enormous suffering. That's what the agony of Gethsemane is all about. The suffering. Because Gethsemane is not Calvary. 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But here's the crucial bit. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And not the devil's will either, but thine, my heavenly Father's will. That's why you and I are here today with hope in our hearts. That's why we can face all our pains and pangs and problems with a solid foundation, with a light shining in the midst of it all. Because Jesus is who he is. And he's done what he's done. And of course the temptation is. I think it's similar to the temptation he must have had. When he came into Jerusalem for the very last time. And he's coming down the side of the Mount of Olives. And everybody's adrenaline is surging through their veins. And they're waving palms. And they're throwing their clothes in the front of Jesus. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the temptation must have been. Let me feed my ego because I'm the focus of all of this. I'm the center of attention of all of this. Let me just savor it for a moment. But there was none of that. What was he doing? He was weeping and his heart was broken as he looked over the city that would soon destroy him. And he was saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest those that were sent unto you, how often would I have gathered thee under my wing as a hen doth gather her chicks? But there was a problem. And you know what the problem was? But you would not. That was the problem. But Jesus, they're hard-hearted people. And they've made up their minds. They will not. And what's more, they're soon going to murder you. But it doesn't stop the tears flowing. I cannot explain all these things. But I hope it makes your heart skip with joy. That that's the kind of God we are here today to worship. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I wonder what for. I wonder did he go to the mountain to be on a one-to-one with his eternal father and to say to his eternal father, Oh, give me what it takes to fulfill the role that you've given me. So that I will not be a political king, but I will be the eternal king. Before whom all the nations shall bow. When they gather around the great white throne. Because after all, he was a man. Not only a man, the God man. But still a man who had to be constantly in communion with his heavenly father. Please don't ever say. That you're on your own. I know it feels like that at times. And I know that in terms of other human beings, that may be the absolute truth. You are utterly and absolutely on your own. But never on your own in terms of this being. He knows it all about you. He tested Philip, but he knew what he was going to do. He was 
utterly and absolutely perfect control regarding it all. But he still goes up the mountain to be on a one-to-one. To interact with God. He knows where you are. He knows where you've been. And he knows where you'll get to. And I don't want to take away from the pain or problems of anybody's given situation. But I think we have to go on to say this. He's been way beyond where any of us have ever been. And he is able to console us. And to comfort us. And give us what it takes. Whatever our lot might be. Amen. Let's pray.